Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Nino Lion Media presents The History of Being Black. Welcome to the History of Being Black. I am Eunice Elliott. As always, I'm joined by some Black folks who tend to be some of my favorite Black folks because they are thought leaders, they're movers and shakers in our communities, and they're always wonderful assets to the show. We are being rejoined by a friend of the program, Dr. Reginald K. Ellis. He is now the Interim Dean of Graduate Studies and Research, as well as an Associate Professor of History and African American Studies at FAMU. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Dr. Ellis. I love being being here. So thanks for having me back. Well, that's good to know. That means you'll probably be back again. <laughs> Don't block our number. So uh, <laughs> you have now taken on the position uh, as interim dean for the School of Graduate Studies and, and Research, but you've also been a professor there at FAMU. I know you shared on an earlier episode that FAMU is a big part of your life, but talk to me right now in this day and age, so much is going on in the world and you have uh, a lot of access to young people and not just regular young people that we might find on TikTok. But you have young people who are continuing their education. They might be graduate students. Um, If you had to just try to explain to someone like me who doesn't have uh, young people in that age demographic in my life regularly, tell me, like, what are young people, especially young Black folks that you've come in contact with? What are they thinking about? Whether it's politics, whether it's the pandemic, just the world in general, what, what are young people thinking? You know, I think it's a very interesting conversation. Um, I actually still teach two classes, and so I do have the opportunity to engage uh, with them. And I think they're just as intrigued about the environment that we are living in as we are. Um, I think many of uh, my students are just, in some ways, just as concerned about the pandemic. Um, One of the things that, even though I live in a state that we can't require mass mandates and we can't require uh, the vaccination. Um, I have been pleasantly uh, surprised and happy uh, that, you know, the overwhelming majority of my students, uh, even when they come to the office up here, will have on a mask. And so that doesn't mean that they're necessarily uh, vaccinated, but it does show that they are concerned about the public health and well-being of others. I'll say that the difference between this year and last year uh, is when we were in the heart of the social justice summer. What I, I don't see necessarily the same level of interest in that, but it doesn't mean that it's not there. It just simply means that um, there are other things going on around our student body population. I think uh, another thing that these students are thinking about is really trying to get comfortable being in an environment, physical environment, where where they are certain that there is a uh, ongoing pandemic. So these students are just like us, just like the adults. We are um, getting comfortable being un- uncomfortable, you know, being around other people, making sure that they can uh, stay healthy, but also re-engage with people in ways that they hadn't in about 18 months. And so it's very, very interesting to watch their interactions. It's very interesting to watch 
um, how they attempt to social uh, uh, distance, but at the same time be socially engaged. Um, and so it, it, to me, over the next uh, so many months, it's going to be interesting to watch them as many things on the, the international, national and local level continues to evolve, whether it's dealing with the pandemic, whether it's dealing with social justice issues, and for the most part, whether it's dealing with their their home and local issues. So it's interesting when you put it, the social justice summer, um, where basically the country was at a fever pitch, especially our young people. So when you say that it's died down, I think obviously between media coverage and everyone's um, fever last year uh, following George Floyd's murder uh, last May. Um, it what, what does that do for the movement? I think we see these flares uh, when we have tragedies and then unfortunately it starts smoldering again uh, until the next flare. So when you mention that you can see that among young people, I think that speaks to pretty much the country, the, the entire community, and even those who became new allies. You know, it was like a fever pitch of, I didn't know, and, and now we don't hear about it now. Why is it that we always tend to go from the flare to the smolder? And what could any of us possibly do um, to, to stay in flames? And part of part of it, even as I ask you the question, I know personally, part of me is just it's so it takes so much energy. <laughs> it takes so much of your emotional bandwidth to be so heightened and so engaged all the time. But but what, what do you think um, causes it? And, and how can we try to maintain a little bit of a simmer? Well, I think last year was just very, very unique. You know, we all were home, you know, on Memorial Day of 2020 because of COVID. And when whatever your nightly news was or whatever you were watching, you saw the video of George Floyd with the knee, with Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck for however long it was, right? We found out it was longer than was first reported. And so, now, for the first time in, you know, at least 50 years, people had to grapple with what black people have been saying that has been occurring to them, you know, uh, since before 1619. And so I think that that was the moment that the pandemic caused us to, to the, the pandemic caused everyone to stop and pause. And then we were faced as a nation with what a segment of their society has been living with since they've been part of this nation. Um, I think what has changed now is people now, because they are not forced to be shut in, are able to find distractions, right? Distractions, whether it's going to school, whether it's going to uh, events, going to football games, if you were you know, a football fan, going to the clubs, going to the malls. And so, while these things are still going on um, around us, there's that there's not that thing that is forcing us to face it and to deal with it. So to answer your question, how do we keep the attention relevant? One of the things that I was suggesting um, even last year is that we know we have these moments, but the question, how do you turn a moment into a movement? That's what is really going to make the change. I, I, I do think that while people have distractions now on some subliminal level, there is a, a still a desire to have a force of reckoning. I think people are now more conscious of social justice or social injustice. 
But I think what you're starting to notice on the far right and the far left, people are starting to pay attention to local politics. So, for example, you see people going to school board meetings and they're debating about masks. You see people going to school board meetings and they're debating about, you know, these public health issues. Some people will say, well, man, this is dangerous for democracy. But when you really understand and really pay attention to history, that is actually what democracy is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to be, it's not necessarily a comfortable thing because when you start thinking about the idea of freedom, that's something, right? This, this concept that I can literally be free to do what it is I want to do. The difference is, I would argue, is that now more and more other people are being included into this concept of freedom. And some people are uncomfortable with what that freedom looks like for everyone. And so, so I think that to your, to answer your point more directly, we know that these social injustices are still here, but we, we can't get totally distracted because quote unquote, now we know we're in our new normal. People are starting to get comfortable with how we live in this this concept of COVID, but we also have to be able to walk and shoot gum at the same time. So yeah, we have to get active on where we can be active. For example, with you, you have a, a large platform and you use it by speaking about these things. Don't stop speaking about it. Um, what I've made the argument with historically black colleges and universities. I believe that HBCUs are in their perhaps uh, a renaissance era, that, uh, in an era that we haven't seen since the 1980s, you know, since you had a different world. And, and when people were saying, oh, I want to go to a black college now, I think you're starting to see that again. You have Dion at Jackson State University. And so people are really, really paying attention to HBCUs. We have to turn this moment into a movement so it doesn't go away. And so it, it takes individuals who have a vision and, and are being intentional about what that means. I think for HBCU perspective, you got to make sure you keep making relationships with these donors, all right? You know, Mackenzie Scott gave out so much money, but we need to make sure that the Mackenzie Scotts of the world know about HBCUs. Uh, we also need to continue to recruit a uh, scholar, not just young young individuals who want to go to to these universities, but also individuals who will be of value to instruct and teach at these universities. So while we are in this moment, this social justice moment, whatever your skill set is, if you want to make sure that it is at the forefront, you have to do what use your platform to ensure that it stays at the platform. Because um, I don't know if we will ever have uh, a Memorial Day 2020 again, right? I don't know if you will have 300 and some odd million people at home to watch a lynching unfold the way that we did in 2020. And we are different. We are a different society in 2020 than we were in 1920, where you had the community coming out uh, for lynchings. But, you know, people... Um, when 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 we hear historically that these things happen, and then when we face it, and our children perhaps because it was dinner time were watching, uh, I think it did change the core and heart of America. So when you mentioned um, obviously that we were all you know there was nothing else for us to do last year, and some of us you know obviously are more familiar with uh, police brutality and lynchings of of uh, black folks in America than some of our counterparts. So when we started getting back to this so-called new normal. Obviously, you know, we feel relieved uh, in some way that 
something else we can go do or something else we can, um, you know, put our attention on. So I'm curious because when I'm thinking about people who have dedicated their lives to the movement, have gone beyond the moment and made their lives the movement. And I think obviously, first of all, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but I also know he suffered from depression and it's almost like, how could he not? What is an idea we can have to not go from okay, that was a moment. We're back to our regular schedule programming and our distractions, but also being able to maintain the balance between fighting for the movement, keeping the movement on the forefront, but also having well-lived lives. I think people were so intense last summer. I think that is something that people are trying to find that happy medium, right? And it feels like on one hand, that people have forgotten about the social justice summer that I'm calling. But I don't necessarily know if that's the case, right? I don't know if if people have forgotten. I think that I think people are trying to find a, a place to where they can, to your point, not be so enthralled in it. But at the same time, what I'm noticing also is, you know, especially with this younger generation, they are more fears as it relates to saying we will not be treated this way. We will and they are demanding more, but they they could do that today and then go to the club tomorrow. And then if they have to come back and do that again today. And the, I think one of the things that we are finding that perhaps is a bit different and and you know I'm not I don't speak with authority on this is that because these kids have grown up their entire lives and perhaps their parents even have grown up in an integrated society, they're looking at it through a different lens. So, and so when I think back to that Black Lives Matter, those several Black Lives Matters protests, you know, in certain cities, this, this was an all-white movement. <laughs> you know, even here in Tallahassee at a certain point, the number of white people outnumbered the number of Black people. It didn't mean that the Black people were not protesting because, again, we all protest in different ways and we understand that you know, this is our lives. So I'm not, I don't necessarily, some people will argue that I didn't necessarily have to be on the front line protesting because I'm on the front line every day. But the fact that you had the advocates, and I think they're still there, right? I think those advocates are still there. So I don't think just because, you know, the people aren't in the streets or you don't see the signs, I don't think we'll, we'll know more as, you know, events come up. We'll know more as more elections come. But I don't, my read is, I think that it's still there, but I think people also are starting to transition, you know, even from a mental health perspective to try to find a bit of balance. And then, and then also there, I think people are hope, hopeful that, the nation is getting better. But I think that as a nation, we are in we are in that experimental stage to see in this generation, is this idea of America something that can last, you know, another hundred, two hundred years. So what do you mean when you say this idea of America? What do you mean by the idea of America? That this melting pot or this democratic, so-called democratic society? What do you mean when you say idea of America? I mean, it's all it is, is an idea, right? It's this concept of America, this, this concept of liberty. These are just ideas. And it's this, this experiment, right? It's, you know, we had, you know, we would, when America was created, this is something that didn't exist anywhere else, right? This 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 concept, this idea of a democracy that, you know, one man, one vote, uh, and everybody had this idea of freedom and liberty based off of being created by the creator. Uh, and so, you know, 
And there have always been periods in since 1776 where this idea was challenged. I mean, of course, it was challenged in 1776, you know, and, and with the Revolutionary War and all of that stuff. So these ideas, this idea of America, you know, this concept of democracy uh, has has always been a very tough, um, very muddy concept. Because now the further you get away from the founding and the more people you include in the United States Constitution, the more people you you include into the idea, it makes it tough for certain people to embrace. Right. It's good when you're talking about a limited number of people. It's good to say, yes, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness for me. But what about black people? What about women? What about now? The individuals uh, of the Latinx community. What about individuals of the LGBTQI community? So it gets more as we as we start to evolve into something else, that idea becomes uh, very, very, it gets more and more muddy. But and at the same time, it perhaps potentially become even more potentially that that bright light, if you will, uh, on the horizon, potentially. So that's interesting when you say this idea of freedom, this idea of liberty, and then this was this country that was made up of immigrants who have such a negative view towards certain immigrants uh, now in this day and age. And as you mentioned, so many different communities that are looking for their freedoms and their voice that then challenges the idea of freedoms of the founding fathers or politicians or government. Um, And so, yeah, it is just an idea that the more people that are involved in it, less of them have that idea and they have different ideas. And now there's all these different ideas floating around, which I guess at the end of the day could still be positive, but definitely probably would need to look different than the original founding fathers saw it. Yeah, and that's one one of the the concepts that I've been grappling with really since, you know, the the 2020 election is that when you go back where we know in 2020, you know, if you take take out these black pots of vote, America doesn't look like what it it does today without Atlanta and and Philadelphia, Milwaukee and Detroit for example, right? And so when you start to think of why did these, why have black people stayed loyal to the concept of the United States Constitution, of the vote? Because black people have been one of the few groups who I believe, and this is just Ellis talking, who really believe in the concept of democracy. And if democracy actually works, it benefits us. And so that's why Time and again, since slavery ended, the first thing that black people fought for was the right to vote and then education. And so in certain certain places, it was back and forth, education and the vote. But it was always tied to the vote because they understood that the vote would then include them in this concept of American democracy. And so when we start to see certain states change voting laws to make make it more difficult uh, for certain people to vote, it's very clear to me that what these concepts are fighting against and what this idea is fighting against, we believe in democracy when it benefits us. We don't believe in it, or we believe that other nations should truly have a true democracy. But there's a group of people in the United States of America, and there has always been a group of people 
who don't believe that this concept of or the 14th Amendment should be extended to everyone. Right. This idea of citizenship, the idea of born citizenship. Some people don't believe that. Right. And so uh, so when we think about when I just from my concept of studying African-American history, it has been uh, amazing to me that, you know, black people perhaps have been in, a, in, in an abusive relationship with the United States of America. But black people at our very core have saved time and again the idea of America, which is the basic concept of democracy. So even when you say that, it makes me think, like you said, an abusive relationship, but it's almost like we are so idealistic in the ideas of America that if we pay taxes, if we register to vote, if we get an education, if we do all the things that they kept putting roadblocks up against us doing, if we could do those things, then we'll be accepted as Americans. And somehow that still has not worked this many years past uh, the quote unquote abolition of slavery, uh, the quote unquote right to vote. You know, everything is in quotations when it involves non-whites as far as those liberties that were the basis of the formation of this country. I want to ask you about um, two more things before I let you go. One is you mentioned um, Deion Sanders at Jackson State and how that has brought attention to HBCU athletics football for right now. And I saw recently where Coach Sanders, because I wouldn't dare call him Deion, (laughs) I saw where where Coach Sanders uh, is trying to offer support to one of the rivals of Jackson State, Alcorn State, just because they don't have some of the resources. Talk to me about the power of the Eddie Georges and the Deion Sanders coming back to these universities and and signing on as head coaches. What is that doing for the university, the programs, and just uh, recognition? So to me, for me, being a a lifetime HBCUer, it's a double-edged sword. So I'll I'll speak about perhaps the the, the negative side and then the positive side. I think for the negative side, and I know some some HBCUers who came up the ranks as coaches, and for a person like Deion who it, Dion could have been Dion, Coach Prime, I'm sorry, at Florida State, right? It, it wouldn't have mattered. Wherever he went, the success that he is seeing, it would materialize at USC because he's bringing his star power, which is very brilliant, right? So I studied him just from a distance, and there have been a number of you know, former NFL players who have thrown their hat in the ring to be a coach and perhaps even be a coach at an HBCU. None of them have been as successful as Dion because from my assessment, he did two things that were brilliant. One, he hired a real coaching staff around him. That's the first piece. He has individuals who actually are coaches. Like, I believe uh, one of his, uh, uh, just off the top of my head, one of, one of his offensive coaches was a former head coach at Howard University. Right, and So he has established trained college football coaches on his staff. The second thing that he did was successful. He's using his celebrity to enhance the brand of Jackson State University, which also is enhancing the brand of the Southwest Athletic Conference, which is also enhancing the brand of historically black colleges and universities. Now, that's all positive. The negative is if you have individuals who have been, you know, going up the ladder, if you will, you know, starting out from, you know, graduate assistants, moving all the way up. And now they've been doing this for 10, 15 years and they have not been able to break through that opportunity. The fear is this is just a fear that I'm, I'm maybe even bringing up. 
what happens after Dion's sons graduate? Does he say, well, you know, I did four years. My sons are gone. They, they're in the NFL now. I'm gone. Is what he has done for Jackson State and HBCU sustainable? Does ESPN continue to show X number of HBCU games on their platform? Uh, does Aflac and all of these other uh, Fortune 500 companies advertise for these HBCUs? So the fear is, from my assessment, the fear is is that to, going back to uh, uh, something that you you raised uh, uh, earlier, is this a flash in the pan or is this something that's going to be long lasting? Uh, would it be a person like Dion? It is specifically a Dion. I'm not sure, but what? The, so here's the positive: we know we have Dion. He's given us the blueprint. Other universities should use it. Not saying that you have to go get because there's only one Dion, right? Yeah. There's only one LeBron. There's only one one of these superstars. So you don't necessarily have to go get that person, but the coaches and the athletic directors and presidents and the advancement team should really look at what he's doing. And while he's opening the door to those companies and organizations, and even those recruits, we need to walk in there and tear the door down. So when he does leave, and eventually he will leave, when he does leave, we still have access to those individuals. So, Right now, it's, I think it's a net positive, but it could if the community, the HBCU community, doesn't take advantage of it while he's here, it could possibly be a, a negative. And, and that's honestly, that's the negative I've heard from people who coach in uh, at HBCUs and have been in the programs, attended the universities, were graduate assistants, have been assistant coaches. There is some of this thing of, OK, well, now they're just getting these named people who are coming for their benefit. But obviously, it'll benefit the program. So it'll be interesting to see how that does play out in the next few years. We'll, we'll definitely have you back uh, to talk to us about it. After the, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Coach Prime, Coach Sanders. <laughs> Graduate. And finally, I want to ask you about um, what we like to ask all of our guests at the end of each episode, which is Be the Change. You mentioned some ideas that we can all do to be hashtag be the change in our own communities, in our own lives, in our own uh, neighborhoods. Uh, when we're talking about the flame, uh, can you offer us, you know, one action item that all of us can do to keep this flame going? Yeah, I know last time I told, you know, the flame was to find a, a something that you believe and gave to it, right? Um, and that could be an HBCU, that could be your local church or organization. But I would say the same thing, whether you're giving your time or your talent or your, your treasure, think that we're in an environment now where if it, even if you give something that's little, it's $10 a month and make it reoccurring. Give to that organization, give to that program, give to those people. Because it does, believe it or not, make a difference. And it'll make a difference in not just one life, but several lives. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Reginald K. Ellis, interim dean of graduate students right now at FAMU, also associate professor. Thank you so much for being a friend of the history of being Black. And for our listeners, thank you so much for being a supporter and a loyal listener. Don't forget, you always want to subscribe, like, and share our content. And that's how we get the word out and we can all be a part of the change. Until next time, please take care of yourselves and we'll see you then. Thank you. 
The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Ariel Mancibo. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And on IG and Twitter at History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.